Hello and welcome to this episode of the Decade Podcast. My name is Melke Larsson and I'm the host of this show together with Jonathan Angel. And this is a podcast where we curiously explore holistic sustainability and answers to the question, how on earth can we live together? Join us as we learn from inspiring stories from champions of sustainability and beyond. We hope to inspire you to think, act and work for a better planet for all throughout this decade of action. This episode is the second part of our two-part series with Karin Tumazu, who is the head of strategy and international development at Coral Gardeners. So I urge you to go back and listen to the first part before you listen to this one, because there's great value in that one. Um, but in very brief terms, we talked about Corinne's journey of changing careers and finding herself in on the island of Moria and starting to work with Coral Gardeners. We also talked about how corals work, their part in the ecosystem, and why it is so important for us to help restore their health for ourselves. We also begun exploring their strategies for positive impact. And this is really where we pick up in this episode. We are talking about how they are strategically working today to be able to exponentially increase their impact by improving their methods and the efficiency of their transplanting. As listeners, we can learn from these entrepreneurial approaches of how they are making bold and visionary approaches into practical and actionable steps. They're scaling out to create local restoration efforts in other places where there are coral reefs that has been damaged. And their goal is to enable people in these local communities to gain jobs as coral gardeners, as a regenerative work title. Corinne says that Coral Gardeners is an NGO with a startup mindset. And we are certainly inspired by their approach and energy to do the work practically rather than waiting around for someone else to do it for you. So what if more of us applied this thinking into our own lives and, and the challenges that we are personally passionate about? I'll leave you with that thought. And now let's head into the second episode with Karin Tumasu. Welcome, dear listeners, back to the Decade Podcast and the second part of our conversation with Karin Tomaso. How are you today, Karin? And welcome back to our podcast. Hi, guys. I'm feeling wonderful. It's still early morning here in uh, in Tahiti, but I feel great. I'm very happy to be here with you. Mm. Nice. It's so much fun that that we're here in two completely different parts of the world where. We're sitting here in darkness and just had the first snow of the year and you're there and we can see the sunshine in your background. It's lovely. Yes. <laughs> I don't complain. <laughs> yes, exactly. And hoping to hear some roosters again. This this episode that we did last time was wonderful to have that nature sound in the background. So yeah, welcome back. And um, in this second part of the, the episode with you, we're going to dive into a bit more into the how you're making this impact with Coral Gardeners, the principles behind your strategy, how Coral Gardeners is built up and stuff. But why don't we pick up where we 
left in our last conversation about your ambitious project, Odyssey 25, that you also explained to us or told us this, that the goal itself is quite scary and it is important to have big ambitions right and you mentioned that it is a project to develop heat resilient corals and once you know that they're actually working to to really plant them at a larger scale and now we're in 2022 and the goal is to plant one million corals by 2025 but if we dive a little bit deeper into the process itself can you further expand on where are you at in the process of planting one million corals by 2025 well thank you uh, thank you jonathan so basically the odyssey the last time you know we talked the symbolic number of planting one million heat resilient corals i explained that it was more like a something that people can easily relate to to understand the scale at which we need to actually make it happen so at Coral Gardeners, when we looked at the coral reef restoration world, we know that, they, that there is this number, you know, bit thrown around and nobody is actually providing the plan to do it. So we basically took up the challenge. You know, I sat with Titwan a year ago and we were like, hey, maybe why not this one million goal, even though, you know, we're still young and our restoration program is still, you know, at its early stages. But it's working. So if it's working small, you know, if we can prove that it can work at scale, then we have something to give to the world and we have something maybe to accelerate the, you know, the restoration of uh, coral reefs. That being said, you know, it's always a bit tricky because coral reef restoration is an adaptive solution. So it's not a silver bullet solution. And it's important for people to understand that because if you, you know, you listen to science, essentially there's not so much, I would say, decades and decades and decades of research on coral reef restoration. So what we're going to do through this goal, and of course it's ambitious, but how we're going to do it, it's essentially we started relying on the best practices that uh, international organizations that have been developing all those core refrustration methods. And what we did is that we perfected those methods uh, and we added a layer of very uh, strict monitoring protocols so that we can gather data and not only plant one million calls, but also uh, know if those one million calls actually made a difference in the restorative, like the restoration process. Because I would say the most difficult part is not necessarily to grow the corals and transplant them. It's it's to know whether they actually made a difference in the water afterwards. And this mm. is where we lack data. And as part of that, you know, Odyssey 2025, what we do is not only you know, providing the data that we need to actually prove that core frustration uh, can work at a large scale. But we're also, you know, gathering the data through the technology that we're developing with the Core Gardeners Labs. So through the Odyssey 2025, of course, it's about replicating the recipe of success that we have here in French Polynesia. Now we are in three different locations, Moria, Tahiti, and uh, the Tuamotu Archipelago. And now we're about to get out of our comfort zone uh, to target other reefs around the world. So the Odyssey is like a very strict rollout plan on, you know, testing the methods and the technology 
that kind of put all of that on steroids elsewhere to see whether, you know, uh, what influences the most uh, scalability of core refrustration. Is it environmental conditions? Is it stakeholder management as well? Is it, you know, the, uh, for instance, the coral species that we work with? What is it exactly that today could you know, accelerate the work and also what are the constraints that, you know, why nobody did it in the first place, you know, is it a lack of funding, is it, and we need to understand all of that. So we're not only doing this, you know, for us and uh, kind of to, with the just, you know, with the, that one goal to make history, we don't, we don't really care. It's not really about that. Essentially what we want to do is you know, once we get out of our comfort zone and we can test that elsewhere, then we can provide to other practitioners. So there's this uh, philosophy of making everything that we do open source eventually. Uh, so not only, you know, the, the technology that, that we use, but also the how we did it in terms of business model. The number one thing that slowed down everything that relates to the ocean and the restoration of marine ecosystems is the funding. Mm-hmm. So at Core Gardeners, when we thought about that one million goal, you know, it's it's funny because sorry, I, I need to step back a bit. Eh? Uh, but when we 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 set up a goal, we don't actually mm-hmm. think about that how we're going to do it. We just set mm-hmm. the goal, you know, and we mm-hmm. say, okay, is it is it relevant for us? Do we think we can make it happen? And then we figure it out how we're going to make it, right? Mm-hmm. And this is when the fun begins. So you know, we set that goal of one million hit resilient calls and. Then we worked a bit backwards and we said, okay, what do we have today in-house that will enable us of doing this? And what is it that we need to get there? Because it's a mm. huge leap of faith, right? Mm, <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. We, can, we can dramatically uh, <laughs> you know, fail, but we can also like, dramatically succeed. So mm. we chose to see, you know, the, the glass uh, half full than half empty. So then we worked uh, on the plan. And essentially the plan, what does it do is like it calculates the pace at which we need to open sites based on the current methods that we're using and also defining several assumptions that also accounts for um, the pace of releasing new technology that will make the work more efficient, productivity gains and all of that, and working with uh, you know, um, different organizations, scientists uh, and stakeholders to help us kind of speed up and amplify. So the plan starts kind of slow because the methods that we're currently using with open water coral nurseries and all of that, the corals needs to grow for about 12 to 18 months, which is quite a long process. You know, uh, you wait like a long time before you can transplant. But we know there are already methods like land-based coral nurseries where uh, corals can grow faster using macro fragmentation. So you basically cut Mm. a much, much smaller coral fragment and then you control the environmental uh, parameters for those corals, those fragments to grow faster than in nature. So essentially you're just, you know, controlling a bit better the growing process and then the transplantation, it's all about making it like efficient using, for instance, um, uh, monitoring apps uh, that we're currently developing uh, with the Core Gardeners Lab. So now all of our team is going to be equipped with an iPhone with an underwater case. Uh, and every time they're going to go in the water, whether it's in the coral nursery or on the transplanted site, they're going to be able to basically scan the reef with their phone. They can take pictures, they can enter data, 
and the data directly you know, populates our database uh, in the cloud so that they don't have to do double work, you know, kind of uh, using underwater slates and then going to Excel and then, you know, input the data again. So I think what CoreGunners is very good at is kind of bring that layer of innovation and that layer of creativity on, on how you can actually do the work. So as we're going to do that, now I explain it's about doing it elsewhere. So um, mm. the first step for us is going to be going to Fiji. So hopefully, um, you know, we're going to open Corganus Fiji by the end of the year, early next year. And only in Fiji, we can transplant 1 million heat resilient corals. And the beauty of Fiji is that, first of all, I've, I've seen the most beautiful corals I've ever seen. <laughs> no offense to French Polynesia. Um, <laughs> but the corals are really amazing, but they're also under a lot of stress, a lot more stress mm. than in French Polynesia. The water temperature in Fiji goes, goes much, much higher than in French Polynesia. And they've had already a bunch of bleaching events in the past 10 years that it's now recurring. It's one, you know, every two years, mm. which doesn't let the ecosystem regenerate by itself. So yeah. We essentially, you know, uh, losing corals even before, you know, they, like at a much higher rate that it can regenerate. Mm. So Fiji mm. is going to be our first, uh, you know, expansion. And we're also going to launch pilot studies in Southeast Asia, in Thailand and in Indonesia. And we're also um, uh, starting to get approvals to do work in the Caribbean. So hopefully we're going to be able to test the methods and the technology in different places in the world and in different, I would say, ocean, even though, you know, we have one ocean, still the environmental conditions change as you move around. So already next year, the rollout is going to be quite intense. Uh, this year, we're going to reach the mark of 30,000 corals just for French Polynesia and just with one team doing the work. Um, so, so if I know that right, that's like almost a doubling from last year, isn't it? Exactly. And wow. you know, the beauty of it is that in the past five years, so Corganers has been created in 2017, and in the first four years of our, of our existence, we transplanted about 10, 15,000 corals, and just this year we're transplanting 15,000. Mm. And I would say, you know, probably we could have done much, much more. So I'm quite confident that doubling down next year, for me, it's kind of minimum. We can probably do three, four times because we're going to uh, include as part of our restoration methods, you know, that land-based coral nurseries with the macrofragmentation technique that grows the corals basically in a range of like six months versus a year or a year and a half. So you cut, I mean, you cut the growing time in half. So if you start thinking about restoration and how to grow corals and how to transplant and how to uh, monitor all of that. Essentially, it's like a, I would say a, I don't say, I don't like to say industrial process because we're not doing it, you know, for the sake of, you know, just growing corals and transplanting mm -hmm. them. But you have to think in terms of process and where in that process you can make it better and make it more efficient uh, mm -hmm. so that also the people who actually do the work and do it in, in um, I would say, with, with efficiency and, and productivity and, and also less, uh, uh, I would say, less pain because it's, it's hard work, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we're not only looking at the calls, but it's also about how we do it. And I think this mm -hmm. is where core gardeners really innovate because in the how, this is where we're trying to make the work easier 
and more efficient. And I think this is what we need. And, you know, on top of that, it's, it's also about providing the means of doing the Odyssey. So in terms of funding, and this is where I think we can talk about the unique core gardeners model, the core gardeners mm-hmm. way, if you, you know, if you prefer. Um, yeah, exactly. But I have one, one question first before we move on to that aspect that you talked about the process when you develop these uh, heat resilient corals. In, in the last episode, you also explained that, yeah, we're a bunch of island boys taking things into our own hands and doing stuff. And, and you also talked about collecting data and seeing how these corals behaved in the ocean. I also know that you've collaborated with scientists and stuff like that. For me, it sounds like developing a heat resilient coral is quite a complex and, and long process. Can you talk a little bit more about the process of how you develop that heat resilient coral? So coral frustration, I explained there are some already some international guidelines that have been developed mm. by ICRI and UNEP um, and coral scientists, coral refrustration uh, practitioners. So essentially, we took that baseline first, mm. you know. So what we do at the moment is um, we go scout the reef, okay. And we, um, because we have uh, historical data on different bleaching events, we know based on the size and the, the health of some coral colonies that those colonies were actually there before the bleaching event. So we have a reasonable doubt that these coral colonies resisted the rise of water temperature and may hold kind of the secret uh, of resisting, you know, uh, the rise of water temperature. Of course, this needs to be backed up by scientific data. So we also worked with scientists to know based on the reef that we're uh, scouting and analyzing, if, you know, those uh, coral colonies were actually going through I would say, repeated stress. Based on that, we look at, you know, the the, the, the coral species. We uh, essentially uh, sample not more than 10% of that colony. We call it a donor colony. Um, and that 10% uh, corresponds to what the natural process of, for instance, fish is going to that specific coral colony and kind of eating on it. So we're not taking more than it's needed. And we essentially fragment that sample, and that's what makes the baby corals. So we call it the donor colony, we call it the the mother. So the mother gave us babies, and then we fragment this sample, and we put the fragments on the coral nurseries. And depending on where the restoration site is, we choose which type of coral nursery we want to build. So we have, you know, coral fragments growing on uh, ropes, uh, we have coral fragments uh, growing also on tables with like little cement disc where we put the fragments mm. and then they fuse, you know, with the base. And then this is, you you obtain a different result than corals growing on, on ropes. And uh, we also have what we call coral trees. So coral trees essentially is like you put a coral baby hanging on a thread and then with a nice flow of the current you know, the coral grow uh, by itself in in the water. And then the fish can come and clean it. And this is a wonderful symbiotic relationship with nature. You know, the fish come and they clean mm. uh, the, the coral fragments and and also with the flow of the current. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful to see how fast they actually grow in French Polynesia. Mm. You know, we have some sites where <laughs> we see it like seven times 
you know, bigger than the initial, the original coral fragment size. So, you know, when we you saw that, time. well, it's, it's about, um, you know, we, we saw the best results in about like a year time, but of course we could go faster if we wanted, you know, um, but it all depends on the survival of that coral fragment then after you transplant it. You know, it doesn't, you know, if I, if I plant like a, I don't know, like very, very small fragments, and then I, I can transplant transplant a million of those already. You know, it's easy. You know, the the, the smaller, the bigger the number. You know, um, mm. however, I know that if I do that based on my ecosystem that I'm trying to to restore, I know that some predators will come and eat them. And it's normal because, you know, you're not trying to prevent the fish to come and feed on the corals. Um, what you're trying to do is like to give a little push. So that's why it's, uh, it's important for people to understand that, you know, it's not just about the one million coral. What you want to do is like make them survive. So you mm, need to yeah. adapt the methods based on that. And it's all the same when you restore ecosystems. Eh? When people tell you, hey, we plant a million trees. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, how close to each other, you know, mm. is the forest going to actually be there a hundred years after you actually restore that ecosystem? Or is it just for the sake of planting a seed? Mm. You know, so I think this is where right now the big gap is when it comes to, you know, providing the, the, the information that you're restoring an ecosystem. I want to know what happens next. Give me the data. Is it restored? Is it surviving? Is it thriving? Because the next step of restoration is regeneration. And this is where the, the big stuff is happening. Yeah, and that's so interesting because I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about this, like the parallels to how maybe we think of the rainforest as an ecosystem or uh, with carbon sequestration programs with tree plantings. And in... I think it's in general like a rainforest once it's fully grown or it takes about 20 years or so until it's carbon neutral again because when it emits as much as it uh, sequesters. So I'm really interested to hear what that's like in in the marine ecosystems because I don't know that much about corals but I'm guessing that they will grow to a maturity to some point and uh, so how long is it to before a reef is like i'm saying this in uh, an over generalized way how long until a reef is like restored from from when you plant the corals and also we actually had this question from a listener which is really fun that so we talked about last time how we're boosting natural selection of picking the heat resilient corals and stuff and i know you've worked with scientists and are trying to use the best methods but does that have any implications on what type of species in the larger ecosystem that actually like these corals? So we'll, I'm, I'm thinking of the parallel of, of course, we're not creating a monoculture, like planting only spruce forests or anything like that. But I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about how this approach of biodiversity and those types of things yeah. are implemented in your approaches. Well, you, you dropped it. Uh, it's about biodiversity. So court reefs, um, if you try to compare it with, you know, uh, agroforestry and, you know, tree planting programs, today there's no consensus that court reefs are actual carbon sinks. 
So if you try to put a carbon sequestration number uh, on court reefs, there's no consensus. So you will find studies that will say yes, others that will say no. And it's kind of hard to work with that, right? Because then you pick a side and you make a yeah. statement out of the world to say, yeah, we uh, launched, let's say, a, a carbon a carbon offset program at coral gardeners, and then, uh, you know, we're selling that to the world. No, um, we cannot do that because science is not um, uh, unequivocal. So essentially what we rather look at is the biodiversity resilience. Um, and I think this is a new, uh, I, would say it's, I would say it's a new angle to the climate action. So people today and companies and different industries, they're heavily, probably too much focused on uh, carbon offsets. And we know the limitation of the current models, where it's more what I call climate accounting, that real, you know, climate strategy. Um, mm. Of course, there are, I would say, good students and there are bad students. However, when it comes to court reefs, what we can already provide and track is whether the ecosystem it, in its uh, entirety is, has been regenerated and uh, had found its balance again. So it's not only about carbon, it's also about uh, are the fish stock increasing because, of, because the reef is it's healthy again. Do we find, you know, let's say um, new species or um, a change in the, the chemical uh, composition of the water with like more nutrients or less nutrients? What is it that has changed with the restorative, you know, work that we did? And this is really where we can make a difference by, you know, monitoring over a long period of time and gathering the data that we, that the science will need to actually make a case for the core reef restoration. At the end of the day, when we look at the natural you know, environment, nature will always, I would say, heal itself, mm. right? So when I talk about regeneration, is it's very important because our work will basically stop when we see that nature can easily regenerate itself at a pace that is much faster than the loss that is currently, you know, and the damage that is currently suffering from. So, you know, we have this motto at Corgoners that says, we will continue to do the work, we will exist until the reef no longer needs us. Mm -hmm. So we will succeed the day we will basically stop existing, you know, stop uh, doing the work because it means that the work is done and then, you know, we will do something else. So that's where, you yeah. know, the, the, the mindset is and, um, you know, it's not, it's not about business per se. Eh? Um, it's not like one day, yes, we have a core adoption program. Yes, we have, you know, we do partnership and, and things like that. But essentially, our partners and all the people that work with us, they need to understand that once the work will be done, the work will be done. Mm. I'm not going to go mm. touch an ecosystem that can regenerate by itself if, if it can sustain itself. So, you know, this is kind of the mindset shift right now that needs to occur as well with, you know, sustainability agenda and uh, people thinking that there's silver bullet solution in one specific area of the climate transition. Um, I do not think it will be just a siloed approach that will work. 
whether it's the energy transition or if it's, uh, you know, um, restoring ecosystems or if it's like changing curriculum at universities. I do not believe that if we keep seeing things in boxes, in black boxes, that Mm. the needle will move. And we saw it with the COP27. It's, (laughs) I don't want to get there, but um, uh, essentially what we do is just to prove that by collaborative action and by connecting different layers of the society, you can make a difference on a specific ecosystem. And at the end of the day, yes, nature will benefit from it. But on top of that, people will benefit from it. You know, the local communities, coastal communities, but also governments. You know, the the value of a reef, if we try to talk about in terms of what we call the business case for sustainability or the business case for nature, eh, if we get there, we know that the cost of not doing is anyway much, much higher than the cost of doing. Yeah. But people do not understand it or do not grasp it because it's over many, many years. And we're in a society where we need to see immediate results. But nature does not hurry. And we need to understand that. We need to support that pace. And it's completely at the opposite of our current, you know, a way of doing things and way of taking decisions, even, you know, our democracies. It's not possible to see results in a five-year term. Mm. So how do we ensure that continuity? Well, we take for now, the answer is we take the matter in our own hands. And once we have results, then we go speak about it so that it becomes unignorable. You know, and the debate can start on tangible data and on tangible work. But in the meantime, we face a lot of criticism because mm. science, you know, do not I would say it's not at the level of maturity that we need at the moment. So that's why we could push, you know, universities mm. and uh, labs and working with scientists and because we need to accelerate that. But by being the early mover, or I would say one of the early mover to scale up, it's a lot of pain as well. You know, I, <laughs> I feel the team every day and, uh, and sometimes it's hard because you said, it, you said it, it's like we're a bunch of ocean kids at the beginning, at the early start. Mm. Mm. So for people to trust us, it's like, where did you guys come from? Mm. Yeah. I said, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but I really, I mean, it's not often that you say say these words and mean it in a nice way, but I really hope that you go run out of business eventually. <laughs> that would be exactly. brilliant. Exactly. I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so uh, fascinating. You want to go, Jonathan? Yeah. I, uh, I had one, one thing that I wanted to unpack a bit more and you touched it up on it a bit in different frames there um, and I've heard you said that you're both a for-profit and a non-profit at the same time or a non-profit organization with a startup mentality and, uh, and I heard you talk about this wanting to take things in your own hands uh, speeding up the process helping nature regenerate itself and really what I'm hearing a lot is to take action and take it into our own hands which I really really love it's a really bottom-up approach and not sitting around waiting for policies to happen or politicians to to make the right decision. So I love everything around that. But can you expand a little bit and talk a bit more? What is the organizational setup? Are you a non-profit, for-profit? What's the the deal? Um, So we're first and foremost uh, an NGO, so a non-profit. Um, we started operated like this uh, since the very beginning of Core Gunners in 2017. And at some point about like 
two, three years ago, we looked at, you know, how the organization was funded. And we did realize, damn, being a nonprofit is kind of hard because you basically have to go get funding in places where, you know, the money is not always readily available when you need it. Right. And it was right before the pandemic. And for us, it was quite a challenge. We didn't know, you know, COVID was going to hit. But we, we asked ourselves, uh, you know, at the early stages of core governors, how can we make our action, I would say, more uh, sustainable over time? And how can we ensure that we can grow our impact over time? So at core governors, we measure success in terms of impact. So we don't use ROI, like return on investment and all those financial trackings. Of course, we look at our finances uh, and we um, publish them. But we, we really measure the success of what we do in terms of impact on our three mission pillars, being the core infrastructure, our ability to raise awareness and change behaviors, but also, you know, innovation and collaborative effort with the science world and the tech world. So based on that, we say, well, how can we fund ourselves without constantly begging for money and 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 basically, you know, going out there and look at the the funds that have the means to to fund us and 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 also avoid to create that, I would say, I call it irrational competition with other NGOs doing the same type of work uh, that we do. Unfortunately, we did realize that you know, when it comes to funding the nonprofit world, there are, you know, there, are, there is a mindset that kind of goes around where, you know, you have to compete for fund. Mm. And I found it completely rational. And I don't understand this concept of competition in the nonprofit world. Um, mm. But essentially what we decided is like, well, if we look at what we do, we know we need funding to grow or impact so meaning recruiting people, meaning, you know, uh, scaling up the work that we do, et cetera. So essentially, mm. we, we realize, well, we're like any other organization in this world, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit. So what we decided is um, next to our nonprofits, we decided to create a mission-driven company so or a purpose-driven company, whatever you call it. Mm. And that company essentially enabled us to fund the nonprofit. So what that LLC does is uh, capturing the funding necessary in the in the like the commercial markets. So uh, through, for instance, the sale of our merchandising, uh, uh, through different partnerships, co-branded products, for instance, or even uh, coral adoption. So we have an e-commerce website where uh, people can adopt the coral. And then that entity has the ability to uh, re-inject the funds directly to the NGO. And this is how basically we fund ourselves in that motion. The opposite is not possible, meaning the, the, you know, the, the money flow from the NGO to the for-profit is not possible. Le legally speaking, uh, yeah. we have set up um, very strict uh, agreements and legally binding contract between the two entities where the money can only flow from the for-profit to fund the non-profit. And the magic of it then is that whatever, you know, the, the for-profit enterprise is doing, the NGO has at least, you know, 30% of its uh, funding needs that is covered by our own 
activities. So it means that I can be reassured that at the end of the month, I can pay everyone. And this is also something that is really close to our hearts, is that if we want to change the world and, and make the ocean important for people, they need to be able to make a living out of it. But to make a living out of it, they need to be able to work in organizations that can sustain themselves and can pay them at the end of the month. So it was also about creating, you know, that virtuous business model that would rely, I would say, on, I would say, traditional concept of an entity that will run to fund the mission and, and you know, make money and be, you know, uh, sustainable uh, financially, but use those funds then to fund the nonprofit work. And then based on, on this, we can say that for each dollar that we're making on the for-profit side, what kind of impact it had on the nonprofit side, you know? Because this is how you're gonna measure it. I'm not gonna say, oh, we're suddenly a unicorn. It doesn't make sense, right? So, mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be a unicorn of impact. <laughs> if it's, uh, I don't know uh, how to call it. Uh, we, we we can we Back can find a, a nice name for it. Uh, but uh, uh, maybe a narwhal. <laughs> I want to be a narwhal. <laughs> you know, the that. unicorn of the seas. <laughs> yeah, that's a good but one. it's going to be in terms of impact. Um, mm. But we have been criticized for that. You know, because. They think, oh, suddenly, you know, it's all for the money, it's all for this and that. Um, mm-hmm. But we were probably the only few organizations during COVID that actually grew. Mm-hmm. And now we see it. We exit, you know, the, the, the pandemic and, and we can say, well, guys, now we're ready to scale up. We're ready to scale up the impact, so we're going to do it. So I'm not blushing by being creative and by, you know, uh, yeah, just trying to change a bit how things are done. And we're seeing more and more organization um, uh, using that model. Yeah, but I find this like, this is so on top of my mind, everything that you're doing, because um, I don't know if you know this, but me and Jonathan and uh, two other dear friends are writing a book about how regenerative entrepreneurs are using values as their guiding principle to enact their values in ways. And we had another guest mentioning the Swedish name for uh, like the business landscape, which is Næringsliv in Swedish, which means nurturing life. Exactly. Um, and I find that's exactly what you're doing with putting the impact first and almost striving to go out of business in a way to to reassure that your work is no longer needed because you've stewarded nature's ability to heal herself. And what you're also doing by spearheading this approach is normalizing a new normal that is against the the paradigm of profit maximization of instead of impact maximization so it's it gives a smile to my face and i'm so happy to hear about this work and also like what we've talked about today has sounded like that you're taking really practical steps to as you said the big and very bold vision but then how do we get it done and being super entrepreneurial about that and making sure that you're taking the steps necessary. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the podcast, because this is so empowering to hear about these examples of we can do stuff that helps the planet and we can sustain ourselves and we just have to be willing to go for it and be empowered. Hmm. So 
I love what you have shared today. I like it. It's so amazing to hear about. Well, and like if I can add something that also is is very dear to my heart, is that essentially why we're doing this. You know, um, could be coral reefs, could be forests, could be anything. So. I think it's important to understand that in at Core Gardeners, we do believe that we will succeed the climate transition if we can introduce models that will basically make our societies thrive in a new paradigm. Okay, so today uh, we are basically in a, I would say in a subtractive or degenerative uh, model, and what we're trying to push through our restoration work is to make those societies move to the regenerative side, right? So as we're going to go through the Odyssey 2025 and planting, you know, this one million hit resilient corals and all that storytelling and awareness that will uh, occur in technology development, innovation, essentially, ultimately, what we want to do is to be a very important part of building that blue economy. And core gardeners wants to create a new job around preserving coral reefs, you know. So essentially, as we're going to expand, uh, we also have developed what we call a self-sustaining business model that basically replicates parts of what we do best in uh, in terms of funding ourselves. And we're going to bring that to local communities so that they can make their own money and they can, uh, you know, um, uh, make a living out of it. Because the goal is not to constantly give them money and for them to to wait and and being constantly on and off. And no, we want to build something solid. We want to create a job that will appear on, on the job list of any country that has coral reefs. And we would be proud the day we have a young girl or a young boy who come to us and say, hey, I attended a workshop with you guys. I, I've been following you and now I'm proud to say I'm a coral gardener. And this is my job and my family live off that income and yeah, and, and it's wonderful. Um, so essentially Coral Gunners, it's also about that. And it's also about one day having a seat at the table because when you do the hard work, at some point it pays off because you have gone through, you know, the, the blood and, <laughs> and tears uh, of doing the work uh, and we will have the data as well to speak. So I think we're gonna, we have to be patient. It's, it's a long road. You know, I'm not uh, overly optimistic, uh, but I'm an optimistic person, but I know it's going to be hard, but we're brave and courageous and we're bold and unconventional. So one day, you know, I hope to have those little black shirts, uh, you know, uh, sitting at the United Nations uh, table or maybe in another COP20, whatever it is, <laughs> to say, guys, we've done the work while you were talking and this is the result and then yes. now we have a basis to talk you know <laughs> but for now you know work in the shadows in silence mm. you know do what you got to do and uh and hopefully uh we'll have something to say that uh, that is backed up by very strong evidence and this is what we do mm. yeah it sounds like batman yeah. Doing the work of the dark night before you recognize <laughs> as the good guys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What a nice way to round off with you talking about the, the why. It's always so, so important to ask yourself, what, why are we doing this kind of work? And it's, 
in so many things that resonates there. And I love the way of building resilience for other people, as you say, a Coral Gardeners in the future, uh, sending you a message saying that, hey, this is how I support my family now. And it's a really beautiful vision and idea to generate impact beyond you, only your own tangible impact, but to inspire others to follow that path that we so desperately need. So love that. And I'm really looking forward to continue to following your journey ahead. But um, before we really round off our second part of this conversation, I would like to ask you our signature questions, Karin, which is what would you like to encourage to listeners throughout this decade of action? Wow, um, that's a big question. I think on, on my side, to all the people out there, I would say, just go for it. If you have a good idea, if you have something that you really want to do, don't think twice. Because we've seen with the work that we do, that even if you're you know, in the middle of the South Pacific with no marine biology background, you can make a difference. So my advice would be just look at yourself in the mirror and be brave. You know, be brave. You have nothing to be ashamed of. If you have something that you believe in, just go for it. There will always be someone that will support your vision, that will basically make sure that you can succeed. But first, it needs to start with you and that little, you know, spark and flame that is burning in your heart. And don't be ashamed. Nobody's looking at you, really. You know, if we think that people care about what, you know, what you think, what you do, no, just you know, just work in your bedroom, you know, brainstorm ideas with your friend and just start small, but start. That's my uh, advice. Mm. Yep. Like it, like it a lot. And um, for listeners who are now super curious to like delve in deep to what all of the it's about with Core Gardeners and where can people find out more? Where's the best place to send them? And maybe where can they find out more about you as well? Um, so for Coriander's, we have, uh, I think the first, uh, place where you can go is on our websites. So www.coriander's.org, uh, and that you can learn about our mission. You can also contribute through, uh, donation and, um, uh, coral adoption and also, uh, wearing, um, you know, the crew shirts and, uh, sweaters that, uh, we wear every day. And uh, you can also follow us on social media. So we have uh, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and it's at Coral Gardeners. And we have beautiful pictures. And uh, this is where we very active and show the work of, uh, of, the, of the team uh, every day. And you can also uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. So we're starting to do vlogs and kind of behind the scenes content. And this is super cool because this is really, you know, roots and uh, and uh, we really show, you know, the the good and the and the failures as well. And it's uh, the vibe is super, you know, uh, super chill and it really represents us. So you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And I also wanted to mention that if you want to uh, have eyes in the water with us, we have a live stream as well on YouTube, twenty four seven, where you can see uh, the calls. Uh, growing and sometimes one of our crew members cleaning the camera. <laughs> yeah, and you can so, hear the fish eating from the crawls. And you as can well. hear the fish eating, yes. Yes. Love yeah. it. 
Yeah, and oh, if it's... we're in Sweden in the darkness and need some uh, Tahitian uh, summer vibes, we can always look at the YouTube. That's a, that's a nice tip for the darkness in our part of the world. Yeah, and guys, you should come. Come to French to. Polynesia. That'd be awesome. You will see. You'll have the best time ever. People never want yes, to leave. Definitely. Definitely. I will definitely come and visit. Super cool. All right. Thank you very much, Karine, for being with us in this two-part episode. It was a lovely time having you on and so inspirational to hear about your story. And again, best of luck for your continuous work. We will follow you with pure passion from Sweden. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Decade Podcast. I would like to ask you to reflect on anything in this episode that impacted you or left an impression that you could take with you in this decade of action. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or in your network on social media. And as always, feel free to reach out with feedback, questions or topics you would like us to cover. You can reach us through our social media or on the decade podcast at gmail.com and we hope to see you more further down the road throughout this decade thank you until next time